0: Have you heard about the new MagnaGrip Pro Nozzle? The MagnaGrip Pro Nozzle is the easiest, most advanced nozzle ever, protecting you from the dangers of diesel exhaust fumes. With its patented flex magnet technology, the Pro Nozzle easily attaches with one hand from a standing position, can snap on from any angle, and fits flush to the apparatus, saving a ton of space. A MagnaGrip is the only exhaust removal system that offers a true 100% seal. For free grant assistance and to learn more, go to MagnaGrip.com. Welcome everybody. This is Eric Dryman, host of the Hooks and Hoses podcast uh, on the Fire Engineering Network. I want to thank everybody for tuning in to this episode uh, the February episode. Um, looking forward to FDIC 2023 coming up at the end of April. Uh, for those of you who uh, haven't signed up for a hot class yet, I would highly recommend the hot class that, uh, I've been the lead instructor for the spin inner search. Uh, we've got a new, uh, class location, uh, this year at the new Indianapolis fire department, fire Academy. It's going to be a live fire class. So I hope, uh, you all will take advantage of that and uh, register for it before it fills up. Um, today, my guest is uh, someone that I know probably better than any other guest I'll ever have on the on the podcast. And that is, uh, his name is Brandon Dryman. He's my brother. He's also um, in the fire service and Brandon has a pretty unique history. Um, I'll let him kind of talk about himself here in a moment, but um, pretty distinguished career, He's well-traveled, uh, he's known around the country for his expertise when it comes to dealing with uh, mental health issues uh, with firefighters and emergency responders. So, Brandon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, hopefully people can tell our voices apart here and they don't think you're just
1: doing the whole interview yourself, but I uh, I can assure your listeners I'm real. Um, yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks a lot for having me on to uh, discuss all this. Um, you, know, you mentioned involvement in the fire service and... Um, I've been, been in the fire service for, I guess it's been over 30 years now, first 10 in the volunteer capacity in the last 21 uh, as a career firefighter and uh, over the years having my own struggles and uh, ended up with some uh, alcohol issues, pretty severe uh, anxiety related problems. And that's kind of where I started down the road with behavioral health about 10 years ago, got involved with peer support. And uh was able to move on and, and actually got a full-time position within our agency doing wellness and support. So peer support's the main driver behind that. But all of that was the result of of getting better and trying to find other ways to help first responders, not just firefighters, but EMS, law enforcement, uh, dispatchers, uh, runs the gamut of people we try and work with. Uh, and then that kind of brings us to, to doing things like this, to educate people, talk about these topics and try and normalize that discussion, maybe validate people's experiences who have had their own struggles so that they can see that they're not alone in all of this and that there's resources available and uh, that we're here to help. And, you know, programs like this are a great way to kind of to do that, to get the word out in a way that people can relate to and see that, that they're not all alone in this.
0: Yeah, that's really important. I'm going to brag on my brother a little bit because he's a little bit humble. Um, but uh, not only is he a firefighter, but he also um, graduated from law school and was a practicing attorney for, for several years. Um, he's got more letters behind his name than, uh, than he would care to mention because he's humble. But he's also, um, you know, he's just a, a real renaissance man, in my opinion, when it comes to the fire service. He's one of the uh, well-known experts for the International Association of Firefighters and travels all over the country uh, delivering training Uh, to organizations who are either developing their own peer support teams or um, providing continuing education for folks who are already part of uh, peer support teams. Um, So I just want to make sure that everybody understands that uh, Brandon's the real deal when it comes to peer support. It's not something that we in the fire service um, historically have have been too concerned with or worried about. Um, You know, I was, I fell into that camp as a as a younger firefighter, um, didn't really care to go to post-incident analysis, uh, critical incident, stress debriefings, things like that, to talk about my feelings and all that kind of stuff, because we in the fire service historically, that's just something we don't do. Um, but over my career, I've had my own personal struggles as well as, um, had to deal with subordinates and coworkers, um, in different situations where, uh, I came to realize that this stuff's legit and that, um. You know, it's not all huggy-feely, touchy, tell me all about your emotions, sitting on a couch, um, Mm -hmm. you know, dumping your heart out to somebody, uh, a bunch of group of firefighters. So, Brandon, just, you know, let's start out by talking about what uh, peer support used to be versus what it is now. Uh, Maybe kind of help some people who, you know, peer support's pretty well known in the fire service. Um, You know, behavioral health is certainly more, more prevalent than it used to be. Mm-hmm. But I still think for a lot of folks, when they think about it, they think, oh, I'm going to be brought into a room with 10 other firefighters. I'm going to have to sit around and talk about our emotions and how we feel. And, and um, you know, I just don't want to be involved in that.
1: Well, and we, and we definitely have seen a shift in perspectives there and, and that what you're describing really formed the impetus for peer support programming. You had mentioned uh, critical incident stress debriefings. That's part of a... A larger behavior health picture known as critical incident stress management, and within that, you have uh, you know things like diffusings and debriefings and one-on-ones and a lot of different aspects to that, and that all originated, uh, I think, back in the 90s. So it's been around for a while, and it's it's tested within a lot of different professional environments. and can be uh very helpful for some folks Uh, law enforcement still uses it quite a bit but what we discovered in the fire service was kind of what you described that firefighters generally just did not one like to be pulled out of their houses um that was you know uncomfortable turf um you're pulled out of your house to sit around with other people who responded on the call and in our culture that that just wasn't a comfortable environment for a lot of our people uh, one of the other, the aspects of that that we picked up on is a lot of times the debriefing teams may not be comprised of all firefighters or all first responders. And generally speaking, they won't be. Um, there are some out there that, that really try and do that. But a lot of them that that I have seen do that type of work among first responders may have one or two first responders as part of their response, but... Um, certainly not the entire team. So I think that also causes us to to clam up a little bit uh, because it's lacking that, maybe the cultural competence or at least a comfort level that we in, intuitively have with one another when we're out and about and we we know we're talking to another firefighter. So, and then I, there was also some feeling, I think, even though we're told that there's, you don't have to share, um, it's still, it's part of the introductory phase of, of a debriefing. You go around and everyone sort of introduces themselves and what their role was and then after that it becomes voluntary and I think even to that extent our people just really didn't like to share that a lot of times uh, so and I think the timing of it's really important too I I, I think there can be value if, if someone really is struggling with a traumatic response to having that intervention but it really needs to be at the same time that that, that traumatic response is occurring and that's often not the case when we're exposed to traumatic incidents. Like there's no set schedule that those responses will happen. Sometimes it can be months or even years after the fact. So what peer support decided uh, as part of the the paradigm shift, and it was something that the IFF was really active with and trying to figure out how we can have better contact with our people. One big shift was rather than bringing all of the responders to the team, it was decided it would be better if the team went out to the responders. So when we go out after a traumatic incident, we will visit the fire stations where the firefighters are. We'll visit them on their turf where they're more comfortable at their kitchen table. If they want to be there, they can. If not, they, we don't ever make anybody sit down at the table with us. We we also try and acknowledge, hey, we know why we're here. We had this, this terrible incident you responded on, uh, but we don't. Necessarily fixate on that or ask people to discuss how they're feeling about it, uh, particularly if we're in uh, a bit of a smaller group setting within the station. We just want to make sure that people are aware that these are what you can expect to experience as part of the stress response to a call like this. So we maybe get into the emotional, the physical response that they can expect. Uh, part of our goal uh, and you'll hear this is a recurring theme with me is is to normalize that response that It's not unexpected that you have, you know, feel stress, that you feel doubt, that you feel shame, blame, guilt, whatever it may be as a result of this call. We expect that. We talk about healthy coping mechanisms, things that they can be doing to uh, help ensure that they come out of this as best as they can. And then if there are resources available and we've vetted those resources, we also leave information for how to access those behavioral health resources so that, we, we take that work off of them, but we, we really don't ask anybody to relive or re-experience that event. We're more interested in how do we go forward with this as part of your life? What can you be doing proactively to put yourself in the best position, uh, to come through this healthy, you know, the, and again, th- these aren't new concepts. It's not as if PTSD is a new thing or depression or anxiety. This has been an integral part of what we've dealt with in the fire service since the inception. The fire departments, but it, traditionally we've just dealt with it through drinking and gambling and extramarital affairs and all the things that go along with that, rather than dealing with them in healthy, more clinically sound ways. And that's what we're shooting at now is to say, look, we, we know these are not new problems, but we haven't been dealing with them at all in healthy ways for generation after generation after generation. Let's fix that. Let's get out to the firehouses after these events uh, where we can talk to people one-on-one or as small groups and get them the resources they need. And it's not just the, the bad incidents that we respond to. Peer support helps out in a multitude of other ways. And I don't know if you want me to get into that part, like all the different ways we engage, or if you have other questions about traumatic responses or what your thoughts are um, or how you'd like to proceed, but but I can even talk about how. We do it here, um, as far as engagement. If if that's useful,
0: yeah, I, I do have. I, I do want to get into that. Um, I got a couple of questions for you, though. Um, you know, and before we segue into, uh, you know, the the holistic approach that uh, that your team uses um, when it comes to to dealing with these issues, um, but you know, we you mentioned that it's PTSD is not new. Um, you know, it's been around for a long time. We just they're being a little bit more cognizant of it. It's kind of like the cancer risk in the fire service, right? It's been around mm-hmm. for a long time, but, um, but there's just been a new spotlight shown on it, um, you know, within the, probably the last decade. And I'd say that's probably a very similar timeline to, um, to the mental health behavioral health um, aspect of our job. Mm-hmm. But what would you say to people who, you know, cause I've heard this, I'm sure you've heard this, but um, you know, we're coddling these guys. It's, you know, we're, you know, this generation or this fire service is not, you're not as tough or it's softer than, than the fire service, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. And, and, um, you know, you just need to learn to suck it up and, uh, and, you know, deal with it.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it goes back to the whole thing that, that it's not new and, and we're no less tough now than we were back then. I think we're more intelligent about what's going on inside of our bodies and inside of our minds. Um, I think if you can look back at the more old school slash traditional fire service that people envision when they say things like that, you can probably also see firehouses where firefighters were sitting out in the bay drinking beer all day on duty and responding potentially under the influence. Uh, And that wasn't just for the fun of it. That was, a coping mechanism that those firefighters were engaged in. I mean, we know other things that have traditionally gone on in the firehouse um, that are incredibly unhealthy coping mechanisms uh, that have traditionally gone on. And again, it's what were those activities engaged in for? And it's, it's better rather than criticizing people for saying, you know what, I would rather talk to a therapist and have a yoga practice and meditate. And maybe if I need it, take medication versus Maybe I'll gamble my house away and, and lose my spouse and my kids in the process and then get a crippling addiction to go along with that. If that's tough, I mean, I would much rather not be tough and take that healthy way um, because that's in effect what people are saying when they, they say that we're coddling people now. To say that the you know the good old days were better when it comes to this is just not true. Uh, and that may be something that people who look at, at the old school fire service romanticize about, but I, the numbers... P- play out for themselves. It's not like we haven't been having a lot of firefighter suicides and things like that for a long time. It's been going on. It's It's been studied. Uh, so we know it's been out there. But yeah, we're, we're finally at a point where the healthier way is finally getting the foothold that it needs to get our people the assistance and, and clinicians and other programs are picking up on that and trying to respond to it to, to cater to our particular needs. But yeah, I, I I really pray that we can get past that whole tough guy, tough person mentality uh, and and get more in tune with the reality that we've been dealing with this stuff for hundreds of years. Um, but now we actually know how it works inside of the body and how we can deal with it and, and also prevent it. Because now that we're talking about it, we don't just have to respond now when somebody is depressed or has PTSD or anxiety, whatever it may be, we can actually build programs centered around resilience. We can come up with, with resources that will allow for earlier intervention and earlier assessment, uh, which is then we don't have to face all these issues down the road because we've, we've headed them off by putting ourselves in better positions to endure the storms that life throws at us. So I would much rather take the current approach any day of the week versus the way things were when I started Uh, in the fire service 30 plus years ago, and we weren't really even allowed to talk about it. Uh, Because I can assure you, even then, personally, I was experiencing a number of things in my life that were causing me difficulties, but I just felt like I couldn't get it out there. I didn't know what avenues or outlets I had to get assistance. And the result of that was nearly devastating. But because now things were in place, I was able to get the help that I needed. And and that's what I want for everybody is... Mm -hmm don't try and tough it out. Get get the help. It's available. Let's make sure our people have access to it.
0: Yeah, it's tough. I'd, I've i given a few, you know, some speeches where we talk about um, what the public expects from this fire service and, and what we expect from ourselves. And I think, you know, certainly, as you said, you can't prepare. We, we do our best to prepare, even, you know, particularly our newer uh, firefighters for what they're going to experience, but it's hard. Um, and I've often said that, you know, the the public expects us to be, to do the job and solve every problem 100% of the time, you know, not 98% of the time, not 94% of the time, um, you know, that's a high bar, you know, when you think about professional athletes and, you know, baseball in particular, you know, you think guy with the batting average that approaches 30% is com- considered a pretty good hitter. And yet, you know, that's 30% of the time three out of seven at bats, he's not going to get on base. And yet the community and the public at large, and even ourselves as an organization, as organizations expect 100% success. And when we don't have that success or we try to intervene and our intervention doesn't resolve an issue, I think to a certain degree that, you know, we kind of contribute to, to some of our own mental health issues because we have such a high bar for ourselves and particularly mm-hmm. for our younger folks who don't have the wisdom and time on the job and experience with dealing with uh, not being successful. I think that, to a certain degree, compounds some of these issues that we're experiencing um, with these mental health issues.
1: Yeah, I agree. I I definitely think it's there. On on the plus side, I think our younger people are more self-aware, which hopefully means that as they notice those, maybe those unrealistic expectations in themselves, or at least the the emotional result of having those expectations of themselves, they're more likely to reach out for help. So, um, what they lack in experience and and perhaps on the job wisdom, I think they've still set themselves up because of the self-awareness they have now that they're much in a much better position to get assistance than you you or I would have been when we started. So that is, I guess, the silver lining that they're coming to this profession now with just a better awareness of those things.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, for the, for firefighters um, out there, what, what would you say? You know, I, I think a lot of people think that, uh, you know, if I go through, if I have issues and I have to, uh, have to go see somebody, I'm going to have to sit on a couch and s- spill my guts and, and, um, you know, talk to a stranger. Um, how does the peer support program kind of, kind of take, take that idea and turn it on turn, on, turn it on its head? and, uh, you know, show or expose people to an environment where they aren't laying on a couch talking to a, to a psychiatrist or a psychologist or, or a social worker or something like that. And that they they have the opportunity to actually speak to some of their own kind.
1: Yeah. So the way that we do things and we're not, you know, we're not clinicians, we're not counselors. Um, we are a good bridge to those resources if people need them. Um, but our, our first goal is just to sit down with somebody. And, and in Indiana, if you're on a peer support team talking with someone within uh, your own agency, it's all protected by law, it's all confidential. So we have our mandated reporting things that we would have to say, but beyond that, everything is confidential under law. And a lot of states have adopted laws like that, which is nice uh, that our people can talk to us privately. Uh, but our first goal is just to to kind of see what's going on in your life what does, if you want help, what does that look like for you? And I think one of the fears firefighters have is once I disclose that, you know, maybe I'm concerned that I have an alcohol problem or a drug problem, or that I can't sleep at night because of the nightmares or the voices I hear, uh, we're afraid we're going to lose control. And once I disclose that and the genie's out of the bottle, people are going to start telling me what I have to do, and I'm going to lose control of the situation. And as a result, I'm not going to ask for help. Peer support tries to avoid that and make clear that your recovery is whatever it looks like to you. We're just here to kind of facilitate, help you come up with an action plan. So if you want to get a certain type of help, let's sit down and figure out how you can access that. But it has to be your plan. And that's what we really, really push for because you're the one who has to do the work. We're not here to dictate at all what you need to do or what you should do. We ask, what do you want to do? What are the barriers going to be to accomplishing that goal? And how can we help you get around those barriers? How can we remove those obstacles? And you know, what's your short-term goal? What resources do we need to have in place? And we brainstorm that all together. And maybe you decide at the end of the day that, you know what, I really don't want help. That's fine with us too. We leave that in your court. Uh, we may ask if we can follow up with you. I encourage anybody who works with a peer supporter to take advantage and, and let us follow up because you know your situation can change certainly uh, for the better or for the worse. And if we're gonna check in with you, that just takes that burden off of you to have to reach back out to us. But we'll check back in and see if anything's changed, how your goals are progressing. Uh, and there may come a time where you need to go see a social worker or a psychologist, but that's not our immediate go-to thing is to say, well, you're, having, you're feeling anxious. Let's, let's get you into the social worker. That's not it. It's, it sounds like you're feeling anxious, It sounds like you're angry, whatever it may be. Do you have any ideas how you would like to deal with that? Do you, you know, what do you want to do about that? And then we follow your lead to get you the resources that you believe you need. um, Not the resources we think you need, if that makes sense. We, we really want this to be driven by the firefighter, not us. Uh, And once firefighters realize that I can reach out for help and I remain in control as the firefighter, that's really important because then I can dictate how this goes and we just feel more secure in that because then we know we're going to be executing our own ideas uh, because my view is, as a peer supporter, whoever I'm talking to is the, uh, the foremost expert on their situation, right? They've lived their life. They know their experiences. They know their, their willingness to work on these things and their expectations much better than I do. Um, so you're the expert. How can I help you as the expert get the help that you want? Uh, that's my goal. And that's really the, the overriding goal
0: of peer support. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, that, that's in, informative and helpful. I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, it's also important for people to understand that, you know, these programs are, are protected under HIPAA, just like, you know, our patient information when we respond on a medical call, um, you know, a motor vehicle accident, whatever it is, um, the same rules basically apply uh, to us as, as first responders, if we seek help ourselves, you know, the, I know the, as you said, the fear is, well, if I go see somebody, then they're going to send the chief a report about all my, all, Mm -hmm. all my mental health problems or send it to my company officer. And, you know, what's that going to do to my reputation? And, and and people need to understand that that's not the case. There are people, um, even with our own organization, within our own organization who have gone through months of, of treatment, you know, been in different facilities or been to different counselors. And unless that individual decides that they want to share that with their coworkers, nobody's going to know, you know, it's, it's completely, I won't say anonymous because it's not anonymous. You know, your, your counselor or your peer support person knows who you are, but as far as the, the organization is concerned the, there's no document, it doesn't go on your personnel file or anything like that. Um, you know, as, as people often think, so it's important to understand that.
1: Um, yeah, and just, I would reiterate that too. So, you know, there are different rules for peer support than there are for licensed clinicians. That's why in Indiana, we worked really hard to get, get the law passed last year. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, when you're talking to a clinician, even if it's your employee assistance program, because I know that's often a fear that, well, they're under under contract with our municipality what are they gonna report back to the municipality? And by law, the only thing that they can report back is that they had a contact with one of your members. They can't say who the member was, but they are allowed to disclose just for accounting purposes, how many people access services. But any of the particulars, even within an EAP, they cannot disclose. Now, even a practitioner who's not a member of your EAP won't even disclose that to your municipality. Mm-hmm. They, they won't even answer the questions. So you're absolutely right. There are certain things obviously that we're all mandated to report like mm-hmm. elder abuse, child abuse. Um, this, that that holds true for clinicians as well. But you can go to a clinician and, and tell them that you're addicted to crack and you need help and they will not report that back to anybody. That's private between you and your clinician. So I'm glad you mentioned that because it really is a barrier that people think, you know, their clinician is going to let the cat out of the bag, especially through EAPs. And that's that's just not the case. There's there's not a social worker out there who wants to risk their license just to disclose to the city that you smoked marijuana like it, it doesn't work that way. Uh, the fines are huge. The professional penalties are huge. So your information is safe when you go talk to a clinician. Just the same same level as if you went and talked to a
0: physician about something. It's, it's the same rules. Mm-hmm. That's, that's very important to understand for everybody. Um, let's, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, because I, you know, there's, we know there's pushback, um, maybe less now than there used to be, but there's still a lot of resistance to people. One, because they, they don't want to appear weak. You know, if somebody comes to them and says, Hey, I think you ought to go see somebody or I think you've got a problem. Um, you know, in many, many instances, um, those people will, be resistant um to being approached and and basically called out you know oh you know the the person doing the calling out i guess if you want to use that term although it might not be the best one really has the best interest of the firefighter in mind but but people's first reaction is to become defensive i think in in many instances like that so for for those officers out there chief officers company officers uh direct supervisors who have employees who have issues or they suspect have an issue how would you go about um you know guiding or counseling somebody on how to approach a subordinate or a co-worker uh, about you know and question them about potential issue that they might have particularly if they're going to be res- you suspect they're going to be resistant to it or try and try and deny that there's anything wrong
1: yeah, and that is you know and traditionally we've just tried to put it to bed. That's been leadership's normal response: is oh we see this problem, we don't want to jam the person up, so let's put them to bed and cover for them. Uh, and that's that's how we've ended up in in the mess that we're in with addiction and and other behavioral health issues because putting it to bed doesn't work. So I think when I when I talk to to leadership and and company officers, I first like to lay it down in the terms that. Your crew is responsible for saving the world. Your job is to save your crew. Like when we break it down like that, right at the the get go, your sole responsibility as an officer is to make sure that your crew is safe. And that's part of of this discussion, not just safety on the scene when you see them operating in a dangerous manner. But if you see changes in their in their behavior and their attitude that concerns you that's also a safety issue. And it's incumbent on you as a leader to have the courage to address it. And it's not easy, you know, we always say heavy is the head that wears the crown. And that's true, but that's why we become officers is so we can have those conversations with our people and make their lives better. So with that, how do you do it? And I think it's important to be really particular about changes that you've noticed. You know, when I look at what is a behavioral health problem Generally speaking, I'm, I'm looking at something that's a uh, some type of emotional or behavioral issue that is impacting a person's home home life or work life, kind of broadly speaking. So that will manifest itself in a few different ways. Um, one is a, you know a change in attitude. Uh, the biggest red flag warning sign we have is anger and irritability. Uh, so as an officer. Pay really close attention to that. If one of your employees is suddenly angry all the time, slamming doors, getting in confrontations, major red flag that something is going on. You don't have to figure out what it is, right? That pressure is off of you as the officer. You don't have to know exactly why they're more angry than usual, but you need to have the discussion with them that you've noticed it. So a lot, we will see a change in attitude, Um, maybe anger, maybe somebody who doesn't seem to care as much, but you may see those changes. And, and make a note of it. Be very particular about what you've noticed. You'll also see changes in behavior, people, you know, tardiness, people who are normally clean shaven at shift change, or suddenly you always have to tell them to shave or their uniform is disheveled, whatever it may be. They may be used to always participate in training out in the Bay and do truck checks and then suddenly they stop. So you notice those changes in behavior. Again, be very particular about the changes that you've noticed. Uh, and you may even see changes in cognition. Uh, changes in the way somebody thinks, Um, you know, acting more burnout, saying that they don't care anymore, saying that they feel hopeless, um, that they don't see a future, things like that, that I just can't wait. I'm counting down the days until I can retire. Um, Pay attention to those things. And then when you have the talk with the person, say specifically what you've noticed. Um, It's not enough just to say, you seem like you've been down lately. Say specifically, you seem like you've been down lately because, you know, you've been withdrawing from the, from the crew. You haven't been laughing. You used to laugh all the time. You don't joke around with us. Uh, when we go out back and, and shoot the basketball, you don't come out and play anymore. And you used to do that. What's going on? Like say specifically the changes that you've seen, because the person may not realize it. Uh, so this may be news to them on some level that, that they're struggling the way they are. So I think sometimes just being, particular about what you've noticed as an officer can help get them over the hump that, okay, these are real changes. They've picked up on it. Maybe I do need to do something about it. The other thing is, and if we look at people we know who've struggled, they're usually the last ones to figure it out. Um, I know that was my case. I thought that I was hiding everything really well and nobody was in on it. And as long as I can keep up this facade, I'll be okay. Okay but a lot of people knew I was struggling. They just didn't know how to approach me about it. So as an officer, I think you can also tell them that, that, you know, look, I can tell you're upset that we're talking about this, but trust me, if I'm picking up on it, other people are picking up on it. And once you're on that radar, we have to be really aware that we need to get you the help you need. It's much easier for you to do this on your terms, voluntarily and reach out and get the help sooner than it is to be on somebody's radar and, and end up where you're mandated to do certain things that you may not want to do. So let's let's figure this out so we can do it discreetly, get you the help you want privately, and take care of this before it gets there. Um, and I think if you're honest with people about that, they will see that you're not coming at this in a way to punish them. You're coming at it from a, a perspective of caring that you want to get them help. And I think that can really change the whole tone of the conversation, uh, because that's also one of our fears is if I need help, am I going to be punished? Is there going to be retribution? Um, And depending on why you're having that discussion, maybe you're there for disciplinary reasons. But I also encourage leadership that discipline should be the last option. You know, maybe you want to write somebody because they're being angry and getting in confrontations. But maybe the first question should be why is that happening and what are we doing to help this person so that they don't have those confrontations? Uh, It's the classic, are you treating the symptom or treating the cause and writing somebody up doesn't treat the cause. Um, There, there is a place for discipline, certainly, but I think also being aware that if this is a change in the way this person normally behaves, why is that, why is that happening? Um, Because discipline is not going to solve that.
0: Yeah, it's important. I can remember the first person when I was a lieutenant, the first person I was exposed to that was having mental health related issues. And I really didn't have any idea what I was supposed to do. And that's nobody's fault. It's not, I don't blame myself. I don't blame the organization. Um, I don't blame the promotional process or the certifications or anything like that. It's just something that you know, historically we haven't done a very good job of educating our people one on what's available and two how to go about addressing these issues um as you said you know sometimes you get upset with somebody because you, you expect them to be shaved or you expect them to participate in station uh, duties and they aren't um so rather than rather than trying to find out why why they are the way they are you just address the um uh, the surface issues with uh, you know, insubordination or, um, you know, not following orders or not following policies and things like that. And then that ultimately just makes the problem worse because now mm-hmm. the person's already dealing with, with whatever the root cause is of, of their, uh, their issues that's, that's caused their day-to-day behavior to change. And now you've just essentially piled on, not intention you know, certainly not intentionally, but, uh, you've just kind of piled on to the problem. And then um, you know, the, to me, that can just be a a, a pretty quick downward spiral uh, for somebody, particularly if if one thing leads to another, to another, to another, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, it can really drive a person over the edge, either to take their own life or turn to addiction or leave the job, you know, whatever the case might be. So it's important to understand that you know, discipline has its place, certainly, mm-hmm. but it should be the shouldn't be the the default go to. Well, this guy you know won't shave, or this guy um, in, or gal isn't participating in station activities and doing, you know, pulling their weight. So I'm going to have to, you know, get in their butt and chew them out rather than having a conversation with them and making sure that you understand the bigger picture.
1: Yeah. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm proof of that. When I, when my issues finally came to a head with, with alcohol, I ended up, I had to be disciplined. So, and it had its place. I had, I had messed up. I deserved that. But as part of that process Process wasn't just cast aside, like you, you know, you screwed up and do better next time. It was, look, this is how it is. You've got some options here. Uh, if you want to get better, we know people can get better from this. Here's an option that may get you there. Uh, and that, that's the option that I took. And as a result, you know, I got sober and that's how I got involved in all this. And I think adding that bit of humanity back into the workforce is important. We sometimes get too wrapped up in the numbers, and we and our people sometimes feel like numbers. And like they don't really count as a person they feel anonymous within the organization and that that type of climate just breeds an unwillingness to get assistance but when i was called to the carpet and was told that i still had value and that i needed to still work here and if i wanted to get better this is how we do it and that changed everything for me uh, just by being treated like a human being who had a problem that they could could overcome uh, so I think that's, that's really important for us to keep in mind that never lose the humanity. Even when you have to discipline somebody, don't lose humanity in the workforce,
0: because um, sometimes that that tends to happen. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, you know, a little personal story between us, you know, when when Brandon got in trouble, we both worked for the same organization. We worked at um, different firehouses, but um, we were both on shift at the time. And I had no idea that he was even going through any of this, you know, just to go back to the whole HIPAA thing and, and things stay, you know, are kept quiet and not quiet in the sense that you ignore them, but kept quiet in the sense that, um, you know, this information doesn't get out unless the person involved wants it to get out. So, Mm -hmm. um, Brandon's pretty open about his experience and I, and I, you know, I, I think that's pretty, uh, pretty gutsy of him because a lot of people, um, you know, don't want to talk about their experience and and things they've been through because they don't want to, uh, you know, I won't say it's cowardly, but, uh, you know, for whatever reason they want to save face and, and not, uh, not divulge that. So I applaud you for, for that. And at the same time, you know, I want people to understand that when these things do happen, you know, for the most part, nobody ever finds out unless you, you as the person involved, start telling people absolutely Uh, yeah you know um it was quite some time after after brandon went through his issues that uh i was even aware that he had had any issues so um and we're brothers so (laughs) (laughs) um you know um that just kind of goes goes drives that point home that it is anonymous um, or, or at least it's um not something that's publicly public knowledge within your organization or at least it shouldn't be. So, um, you know, we're pretty fortunate, you know, working for the same department. We've had a lot of um, collaboration on different things. Um, As we try and make this shift from the way it used to be, where we only had, um, you know, the only time the critical incident stress team showed up was when something bad happened. Uh, So primarily we were reactionary. Uh, when it came to issues like this, traumatic experiences and and uh, and events. Um, now the fire service in general, I think is becoming more proactive. Um, and we've actually started doing that as early as Recruit Academy uh, with our folks. So would you just, you know, starting off from the beginning, um, you know, we bring our recruits in, just talk a little bit about how you address the recruits and kind of help to prepare them not only for what they may see or experience, but, but also how to, how to deal with it, um, you know, the process that, that the peer support team uses to kind of get ahead of, of an issue before it ever takes place.
1: Yeah, and so the first thing is stigma reduction, and stigma is driven by ignorance, right? That's all stigma out there is driven by ignorance. People don't understand certain aspects of an issue, and then it becomes stigmatized. It's the same with behavioral health. Uh, i think we're fortunate from say generation x on where the discussion of mental health has been more prevalent you know when, when we were growing up we had fraser and and friends and seinfeld where they would talk about having an appointment with their therapist so that was part of our conversation and i think it's only gotten better um i think again Younger generations are, are much more self-aware than than we were and, and older generations. So that helps us out. It helps that discussion in recruit school. But, you know, we just make it very clear that you're going to see things on this job that you, you really can't even imagine. And I can't describe them to you because until you've experienced some of this stuff, you're not going to understand how hard it can be. So we're very clear about that. We're, we, we try and educate them that, you know, most of the responses you're going to have are going to last for a day or two. That's, again, to be expected. But if you notice that you're having a stress response to something, and it doesn't matter what it is, it may not even be trauma-related, but if, if you just notice you're having any type of stress response for two weeks, you need to get help. You need to get that assessed, uh, whether that's reaching out to peer support so we can work that out with you, It could be reaching out to our employee assistance program uh, because our recruits have access to to our EAP as city employees. Uh, It may even be just calling your family doctor and getting an appointment if that's who you trust. But that's one of our big take-home points is if you experience that stress response for two weeks, let's get that checked out. Uh, we're fortunate that in our recruit academies, uh, our training officers are willing to work with people if they need to, to get in and, and get some assistance during recruit school, we make that happen. Uh, and that's, that's where we're truly blessed that all of our, our units within our agency work together. We're all on the same page with making sure we keep a healthy workforce. Um, we talk to the recruits a bit about what resources are available, how to access our employee assistance program. Uh, we talked to. We have another program available through our insurance that they can use for free. Um, we try not to flood them with a whole lot of of information about particular resources. Just that, generally speaking, this is who you can reach out to with questions. Just because we know recruit school, particularly the first couple of weeks, are so data heavy that it can be hard for them to remember. Um, but something that we added recently to the recruit class is it's a joint effort between wellness and support and peer fitness. Um, I'm a yoga instructor and the the coordinator of of fitness is also a yoga instructor. So once a week during recruit class, during their workouts, uh, we have a yoga day uh, where we really promote, Hey, you know, the mind body connection is, is a great tool to build resilience. This is something you're going to need on the job, doing things like yoga and breath work, uh, meditating thousands of years old, right? This is not new ground we're covering. Uh, We're finally catching up in the West that these things actually work. And it's, it's really indisputable that they work. So we ingrain that with our recruits early on that, that having a yoga practice, having a meditation practice, having, you know, go-to breathwork strategies help reduce stress. And then that's how we build resilience. Uh, So incorporating those into your day-to-day life, and it's been really well-received. And I think that gives them the foundation going forward that they can be proactive about their own self-care, but whenever it becomes overwhelming, they know who they can reach out to, and they know they can do it anonymously. We make all the contact information for our peers available on our department internal website. We have all of the resources that we refer people out to on there. If, if people want to take a look at them, they can figure out who, who the people are that we're going to refer to. And they don't even have to go through us. That's why we wanted to make everything as as transparent as we could that, look, if you don't wanna talk to peer support, if you're concerned about your privacy, okay, that's fine. Here are the resources we use. If you wanna undertake that yourself, it's available. You don't have to go through us to get help, but we wanna make sure you have those resources on tap so you know who we have vetted because we don't refer our people to just anybody. We only refer to clinicians that we have vetted and that we trust. Um, but we, again, we try and, and let the recruits know that this information all out there and we meet with them also at the end of recruit class, uh, to reiterate all of this, but the information is there for you to have. We will walk you through the process if that's what you want, but we also want you to know that you don't have to call us if you need help, um, because you have the information available to you. And again, it's about that empowerment. We're not forcing anything on anybody. Um, we are a resource and you're the expert, we just want to make sure that you have access to the information when you need it. Um, and that's kind of how we get the ball rolling right from the first day uh, or the first week of their career.
0: Yeah, that's important to understand. T- tell the audience a little bit about what you do. Not only, you know, you've already talked about the recruits, but you also have a, a day where you bring the recruits loved ones in, uh, right? With Without the recruit present, um, mm-hmm. You know, recruits are not allowed to attend. Um, you know, the first time I heard that, I thought, um, you know, what that's kind of weird. I wonder what that's all about. So, um, for the audience, it's probably a new new idea to to a lot of them. Just explain why, how that came to be, and why you've decided that it's important to bring the family members of the new new firefighters in and talk to them about all this as well.
1: Yeah, we. So a lot of the, we talked about our employee assistance program, uh, which is open to any spouse um, or civil partner and children of the, the recruit. It's That service is available to all of them. Uh, the benefit that we have through our insurance program, if the whole family is on the city insurance, they also get free visits with behavioral health clinicians through a separate program. So our first, first idea here was the family members won't need to know about what's available to them not just the firefighter, but that these are resources that are available to them. So we understand our people well enough to know that what we email to the firefighter, the chances that it's going to end up on the refrigerator where everybody else is going to see it are pretty slim. So we thought, you know, their recruits are pretty, they're going to do what we ask them to do, maybe more so than a veteran firefighter. So we thought that's the time to have family members come in so we can talk to the people in the household about the resources that are available to them. We also wanted them to be aware, the family members to be aware of what they might expect from their recruit emotionally, what to be on the lookout for. So we, we give a presentation to the recruits of, you know, the, the four most common behavioral health issues we see, uh, alcohol use disorder, depression, um, PTSD, suicidal ideation, some things like that. And we give that same presentation to the family members so that they know what to be on the lookout for in their firefighters. Um, Sometimes we live a double life where the person we are at home is not the person we are at the firehouse. And a lot of us really thrive at the firehouse. And then we go home and we fall apart. And then the spouse or the partner, because they don't know who's who in the fire department, don't know where to turn for help. If they're not aware that peer support is available and that they can talk to us confidentially, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to risk their, their spouse's career reaching out to a chief that, you know, if they're concerned that somebody may have an addiction issue. So we wanted to provide that education. This is what you need to look out for. And we are the people that you can reach out to privately that you can trust and you don't have to worry about any of it getting back to any, anybody besides us. We're your confidential resource. Um, so, and that was, that's been really helpful. And that was actually started, we had a, a member suicide and the, the widow of that firefighter had come to me and said, you know, this, she was very happy with what we had done. And we, we had helped the firefighter out for a number of years with, with other resources, but she had just said, you know, this is something that had started very early on in his career, but she didn't know how to get him help without jeopardizing His position within the fire department. Uh, And that's heartbreaking. Um, So that's where we kind of sat down and said, how can we reach out to the recruits? Most recruit schools have a family day, but we wanted behavioral health to be a centerpiece. So we created that separate day and we asked, we didn't want the firefighters there because we wanted the spouses and the partners to be able to bond as their own peer group. We didn't want them to feel like they needed to hold back or not ask questions because their firefighter was sitting next to them and, you know, the pressure of being a recruit and hey I don't want to be on anybody's radar as a recruit so don't ask any silly questions just keep your mouth shut we didn't want any of that. Uh, We wanted the spouses and partners to feel like they could be open and honest and, and ask whatever questions they had so. We just tell the firefighters, uh, you know, this Saturday is when we're going to have this. We really want somebody, even if you're not married, a parent, a sibling, somebody who knows you well, to be in the audience so they can so they can hear this, and you stay home. Um, you don't need to be a part of this conversation, uh, and it's worked really well. And and we've gotten feedback from spouses who have reached out to us because their firefighters having problems. Um, so it it's worked, um, and it was all because a widow of one of our firefighters brought it to our attention. And that's something to keep in mind that peer support needs your help too. You know, we're we're always trying to develop new programs uh, here with our agency and and peer supports everywhere. If you see something lacking, let your peer support team know. Um, And if you can, don't just come with the problem. If you have an idea for a solution, talk to your peer support program about it so that they can build the program you need. Um, That was something that we should have thought of, but hadn't. But as soon as we figured out that was something we needed to do, we developed that family program within a couple of a months, and then the next recruit class, we implemented it. So, you know, peer support needs your help just as much as you need theirs.
0: Very important, you know, to have that, that inclusive aspect to it um, for the family, particularly for our newer fo- folks. As, uh, as you said, you know, the younger generations are more receptive to this anyway. Um, so it's like a lot of things in the fire service. If you start, if you capture them early on in their career and, you know, whether it's a new way to stretch hose or throw a ladder or do a search or deal with these um, mental health issues, you know, getting in early and and exposing the new people to that from the get go goes a long way. And, you know, it's going to take, it's going to take time. It's like trying to turn a, bat, a battleship in a bathtub Mm -hmm. it's pretty challenging but but at the same time you know it's it's an incremental process it's not meant to take to just turn everything around overnight although if we could it'd be great but but in the long run um you know having this holistic approach to uh to these issues i think is going to go a long way towards making it more the norm than the than the exception in the fire service um one thing that 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 kind of strikes me or struck me when I first heard about it was, and I'm using uh, statistics from 2020 because that's the most recent statistics that, that I can find. Um, but, but in 2020, I think there were about 110, 105, somewhere in there, um, firefighters in the United States who died and were classified as line of duty deaths. And during that same timeframe, 2020, um, there were 127 firefighters, I believe, 126 or 127 firefighters who took their own lives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, and certainly we want to try and do our best to diminish line of duty deaths and be as safe as we can at emergency scenes. Um, but I was kind of struck by that because I, you know, it's it's one of those things that, you know, you you get the notifications from the United States Fire Administration or you see it on one of, you know, fire engineering magazine. Uh, or a fire website where, you know, a firefighter dies, you know, you know, in a motor vehicle accident or has a heart attack after responding to a fire dies in a burning building. But, um, up until recently, you know, I'd say with probably within the last five years, um, I never really saw any articles about people who had committed suicide, firefighters who had, who had taken their own lives. Um, but that's you know just kind of drives home the point 107 line of duty 127 uh took their own lives it's it's more of an issue than probably people realize you know and, mm-hmm. and certainly that's you know just like line of duty deaths or or for the, for most agencies few and far between and a and a you know fairly rare occurrence you know because you know a suicide may be the same way it um, you know, it doesn't often get the attention or the uh, focus maybe that it, that it should, but I think it's important for people to know that, you know, we're actually taking ourselves out more than the jobs taking us out. So, um, you know, it's just important to understand how, how much of an issue this is, you know, whether it goes to that extreme or it's just not having the quality of life that a person should have um, day in and day out because they're dealing with issues.
1: Yeah. And I- So when we look at those numbers, uh, and and it's interesting, too, because in in a number of professions, more people will die by suicide than die doing their job. Mm -hmm. And I think when we look at why is that like, where do why do we see that prevalence in the fire service? Uh, And I lead it off by saying we're pretty resilient bunch, like we're pretty good at what we do. We have a lot of social support. We have a lot of, of protective factors from suicide. But what we cannot escape And and I think this is the real key to the discussion. When we look at the statistics and what we know and don't know, we do know that working age white males, particularly as they get older, are at a much higher suicide risk than basically any other group. The only other groups that have higher suicide rates than working age white males are uh, American Indian and Alaska Natives. Every other nationality, uh, ethnic makeup has way less suicide than us as, as working age white males. When we look at labor statistics, the fire service, at least on the career side, is over 90% male and over 80% white. So we have to keep that in mind when we have a discussion about suicide and, and what's driving it. I mean, we are the demographic, You know, looking at the, at the labor stats, we are the demographic most likely to die by suicide regardless of what we do for a living. And, and we have to be very aware of that, that we're going to see suicide and, and we are at that increased risk. What I can ask agencies to do and what I can ask leaders to do is when you have a member die by suicide and you do any kind of press release, it's always good to get the family's permission for sure. But if at all possible, put in the press release that it was a suicide. It's okay to say it. In fact, we need to say it. Whenever we just put in that the person died unexpectedly, the rumor mill is gonna take off and the firefighters are gonna create their own story about what happened. It's much better just to say this person died by suicide. This is a real risk we face in the fire service. And then include the family in, in the condolences in that press release. Also put in there that help is available and give access to resources like what, what numbers they can call. If there are web links, you can put in provide those resources to your people, but we we can't keep hiding from it and being too shy to say that somebody died by suicide. Um, as far as safe reporting and and postvention, that's one of the best tips I can give. You don't have to say how they did it. In fact, we don't want you to say how they did it, but it's okay to say that the person died by suicide. Um, it shows a willingness to have that conversation. There's actually, you know, there's a, a suicide in, in Florida very recently um, and the chief of the agency uh, who had the firefighter who died put out a wonderful YouTube video in response to that, and he touched on all those points and gave access to resources and what they were doing in response. They're not running from the suicide. They're they're facing it head-on, and I think that's important. Also, if if you're going to do things, well, treat the suicide like you would any other death within your agency. If you would normally send flowers, send flowers, We had a memorial service for our last suicide, uh, firefighter suicide. And I think nearly 300 people showed up for the memorial service. And it was very, very life empowering. You know, there are a lot of stories about the good that this person did. You know, they weren't just reduced to that one thing that happened at the end of their life. We were able to celebrate all the other years of that person's life in a very healthy way, a very life affirming way. But we can only do that if we stop running from the fact that our people are dying by suicide. Uh, And it makes a difference. Doing those things in the wake of a suicide prevents additional suicides, and we know that. So being afraid to address it is only hurting our people. We have to be willing to say the words that this firefighter died by suicide. If you're struggling, this is how you get help too. We want to support you, you won't be punished. We want to make sure you get better. That
0: ultimately saves lives. Yes, it does, and I'd be the first to admit that uh, so talking about suicide or is probably the last thing on my list of things that I want to talk about or have a conversation about, but, um, you know, it's important that we do, you know, the, the military, you know, whether you, you know, I, I know it's not the military directly, but, you know, you see a lot of ads or posts on social media about 22 a day and 22 push-ups for the you know, the average 22 soldiers take their lives every day, um, you know, as a result of what they experienced um, during their time in the military. And certainly our numbers are, thank God, not that high. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's it's much more prevalent than, than any of us would want it to be. And it's certainly um, important to understand that that we're killing ourselves more than, than the jobs killing us. So yeah. um, I think that, you know, Talking about the job, you know, certainly there are, are folks all across the country, career volunteer, they they show up to firehouse either for 24-hour shifts or to go on a run. Um, they go home and they don't think about it again until their next duty day or the next run they get on. But I think that for the most, por- most part, that's kind of the exception. Um, at least I, I want to believe that it's the exception for most people who are are firefighters, it's, you know, we, you know, the cliche is it's not, it's not just a job. It's a, it's a lifestyle. You know, the funny thing about firemen is night and day, they're always firemen, mm-hmm. um, you know, all those sorts of things. But, but to a certain degree, it's true. Um, as we go through our careers and, and as we get older, those of us that are, that are a little bit longer in the tooth, um, how do you, what kind of things are out there for firefighters who are either uh, preparing to retire or have retired because, um, you know, personally for me, you know, I graduated from college and six months later, I got hired at a fire department and it's the only job I've ever had mm-hmm. being a firefighter. Um, it's all I know. Um, it's what I pride myself on. And, you know, I'd be lying if I said that, um, you know, the thought of one of these days not being a quote unquote firefighter anymore being retired scares the crap out of me. Mm -hmm. Um, what kind of, you know, programs or systems or recommendations do you have for folks as they reach that point in their career where they, they, they retire and, and suddenly, you know, they aren't jumping on that big red truck every third day or, or they aren't going on runs anymore and going to the firehouse and things like that.
1: From an external perspective perspective, one of the things that that you can work on is a peer support program for retirees uh, so that retirees are available to contact other retirees about those issues that you've described. It's hard for an active duty firefighter to appreciate what it's like to lose your identity like that because we aren't going through it. Um, and that's something that we're working on here uh, as, as we speak. I had a meeting last week trying to uh, start pinning down some particulars about a retiree program. Um, if you are a member of an agency that has, is a member of the IFF, uh, it can also, you know, stay active in your local, stay active as a retired member that can help you maintain contact with other firefighters, go to the breakfast, go to the lunches, make new friends from the retirees that maybe you've never met before and, and keep those social connections going. Um, again, it gives you an opportunity to to speak with someone on the same terms who, who is now a retired peer that you can understand those issues, maybe better. So that's kind of from an external perspective what what types of things can be available to help the retiree. Uh, I think also if you can develop a system, sort of an out processing when somebody comes in to sign their paperwork. Um, if you can provide information or have them sit down with with a peer before they leave to let them know these are you know clinical resources that are available. These are the things that we trust around here. We were we worked with our local um, and the local got uh, four free visits for every retiree in the local through our employee assistance program, which is amazing. Um, that that labor and management are able to work together here like that is phenomenal. So our retirees have access to master's level social workers for visits a year. Um, so think about, you know, is there a way that you could work that out through your locals to have those resources? Um, I think also part of it is incumbent on us as we, I mean, we all know now, no matter how good we are at this job, the day is going to come where we have to turn in our boots and our badge and our helmet and, and walk out the door. I mean, it's inevitable. So start figuring out what it is about this job that appeals to you so much. Why, why did you choose right out of college to make this your life? And what has made you happy doing it? For a lot of us, it's serving other people. So one of the important things we can do is, is figure out what that meaning, what that purpose is and that drive to do this job and start finding opportunities outside of the fire service to engage in those things. You may not be going into burning buildings or pulling people out of wrecked cars, but maybe working at a soup kitchen, or you know, picking up trash in a park. Maybe that's your drive for service. That's the sort of thing that you need going into retirement and start that now. Don't wait until you've retired to figure out how to apply this purpose beyond the job. Start doing it now, as early in your career as you can uh, because we need to have purpose. We need to have meaning. There's, there's a Japanese uh, term called Ikigai and that's entirely what the term is about is where do you find your purpose in life? Where do you find your meaning in life? And people who have that purpose, who've discovered where their values lie, where they get satisfaction, again, whether it's service work or whatever, what gives you that drive to get out of bed in the morning, those people live longer and certainly healthier lives than people who don't. And we we will see people retire from the job and within a fairly short amount of time, they're dead, uh, sometimes by suicide, Um, sometimes because I think they maybe they just have lost that purpose of life uh, and don't have a reason to go on living so do yourself the favor now and really pinpoint why it is that you like this job so much and how can i put that to work as a volunteer or in a part-time opportunity outside of the job and do it sooner rather than later because worst time to figure out what you're going to do in retirement is the day you walk out the door and unfortunately a lot of people do it that way but it doesn't have to be that way. If you give it some thought, you can figure out where your purpose lies and start to capitalize on that long before you walk out the door as a retiree.
0: Yeah, that's so important. You know, we do a lot for our retirees from a financial perspective. You know, hey, here's what your your uh, retirement check's going to be. Here's what your 457 balance is or your 401k balance is. Um, you know, plan for those sorts of things financially so that the the retiree can uh, continue to live and and maintain a lifestyle that they feel is appropriate but I think that's certainly something that for all we're doing on the front end with our newer folks I think that the back end is is as important or more important um, you know as people transition from the fire service to to the retired status because um, certainly our new folks are important because we want to set them up for success but at the end of a career you know when somebody's given you know a third of their life or more to a to a job in an organization and a profession a lifestyle that that is basically their their reason for existence um you know it's kind of like flipping a light switch if you aren't prepared for it you know one day the lights are on the next day they're off and and now you're lost in the dark and you don't know what to do i don't want to sound all doom and gloom and and uh you know make this podcast sound like a eulogy or something, but, um, but it is important. Um, as difficult as these topics are to talk about, it's important that we have these conversations, um, not just in the form of a podcast, but with our own folks, um, whether we're firefighters or, or in a supervisory position, it's important to understand all facets of this, um, you know, from, from A to Z. Yeah. So, um, as we we've kind of covered the the gamut here today um you know from what is peer support what it isn't um how you are protected you know how you get involved in it you know protect from it from a hipaa standpoint and a confidentiality standpoint we've talked about how we deal with our new hires all the way through to retirement is there anything else that um that you would like to to add or discuss um on the podcast today brandon
1: There's just a couple of things that I would add as far as peer support, and this is for people looking to start a program or maybe who already have a program in place. One of the benefits that we have as, as peer supporters is that we can be more proactive. Um, You know, traditionally, like we said at the beginning of the podcast, we, we anticipate we'll get some type of response from behavioral health people after that really traumatic or horrific call. Uh, And that's reactive. And we need to have that. We need to have things in place. So we, we can respond after those bad calls, but we also need to be proactive. So if you have a peer support program, make sure that your peers are reaching out to officers. If, if you're in a career service and you can have people detailed for a couple of hours, you know, detail your peers to go just visit stations when there's nothing wrong, just to put their, their face in the place, say, hello, this is who I am, this is what we do, um, just in and out so people can put a face to the program see that it's another firefighter. Uh, It's great PR. Again, it also normalizes and validates people's experiences with behavioral health issues. So routine visits, I think, are invaluable. Another thing that we do is if somebody has been off for two weeks, we just assign a peer to reach out to them just to check in. We don't need to know why they're off. Um, We just want to make sure if somebody has been off for a couple of weeks that we reach out and check in. We know that As we just discussed, a big part of our identity is entwined with what we do for a living. And after a couple of weeks of being separated from that, being separated from your crew, feeling like maybe you're not contributing to the family like you used to, uh, that can start to, to foster a loss of connection with the people who matter to you. You can lose that sense of reciprocal care. You can start to feel like maybe you're a bit of a burden on your family because you're home all the time and you can't work and provide and protect like you want to. So having someone from peer support just reach out proactively to do a check-in can have immeasurable benefits. Um, So I I really think that's great. And this, you had also mentioned FDIC. I'll be at FDIC this year uh, presenting uh, the Firefighter Behavioral Health Toolkit, where I cover some of the things that we've talked about today. So please come to that, get registered, and, and I would love to see you in my class so we can talk about these issues. I'll stay after and talk to you, give you my information. We can take this conversation further. Um, but please, if, if you're going to register, uh, come check me out. I'd love to have you in the audience.
0: Yeah, it would be good. I highly recommend Brandon's class. I've been been through it and are uh, set through it and it's, it's a good program. Uh, if people had questions for you prior to FDIC, what's a, how would they get a hold of you? I'm sure you're on social media or if you want to share an email, uh, um, yeah. with folks, um, please do so.
1: Yeah, I'm on instant Instagram, uh, just Dryman. Uh, I also, if you're of the more holistic mindset, um, I have a on Instagram under Naptown Yoga Walla. So that's N-A-P-T-O-W-N-Y-O-G-A-W-A-L-L-A, common spelling, just all one word, Naptown Yoga Walla. That's my um, yoga page. I'm available on both of those. Um, I'm on Facebook, uh, on Twitter, uh, at B underscore Dryman uh and my email is b as in boy underscore then my last name uh, d-r-e-i-m-a-n at yahoo.com um i don't know if you have show notes or anything like that but please feel free to throw all that stuff in there and uh also reach out to me ask questions i'm i'm happy to do it i'm in a great position to be able to help other agencies get things set up and i want to help you do that any questions you have so please let me know reach out to me
0: i appreciate that you know folks for the most part, or a lot of folks, you know, this may be their first exposure to you or to this topic, but, um, Brandon is a tremendous resource. Um, you know, there, there may be more people, other people in the fire service, um, that, at his level, but, but they're few and far between as far as experience, not only firsthand personal experience, but also professional experience and all the training and, and, um, Opportunities that that he's been fortunate enough to have over his career. So I highly encourage anybody that has questions about any of this career, volunteer, part time, you know, EMS providers. If you're a cop and you happen to, you know, be thinking, man, I wish I would have signed up as a fireman, and you're listening to this podcast, whatever the top, you know, whatever your profession, uh, if you're an emergency responder, Brandon can certainly help you out, um, you know, in this area. So. Uh, on behalf of the Fire Engineering Network, this is Eric Dreiman. Uh, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to the Hooks and Hoses podcast. Um, again, just another shameless plug. Uh, I will have my VES class again this year, the hot class um, at FDIC 2023. Uh, we're going to be at a new state-of-the-art facility uh, with live fire this year. So it's one of the few live fire classes that are going to be hosted this year. I highly encourage Uh, folks to sign up for that uh, before the class fills and um, and you know if you don't sign up for our class if you see me at FDIC uh, please stop me and say hi and let me know that you listen to the podcast and if there's guests or or uh, topics that you would like to hear me cover or have on you know guests that have on the show that I haven't had on uh, feel free to reach out to me uh, as well either in person or through social media. Uh, you can find me pretty easy. Eric Dryman, D-R-E-I-M-A-N. Um, so thanks again, Brandon, for, for being part of this podcast, uh, this February podcast, uh, stay on. I'm going to stop the recording and we'll say our goodbyes off the air. Everybody have a good, uh, uh good safe February and, uh, we'll see it, uh, for the next episode in March. Take care.